everybody, and welcome back. Uh, it's been a while to uh, Vassals of Kingsgrave for yet another edition of our movie uh, review discussion, whatever you want to call it. Um, we will be discussing one of the big blockbuster hits of the summer, Oppenheimer. Oh, we're also going to probably chat a little about Barbie, but I think that's going to go in there somewhere. Uh, somewhere later, we tried to figure out how to combine them, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, my name is Adam. I'm also known as uh, Drowned Snow on the Discord and the interwebs and various things. Uh, and I am joined by Hannah. Hey, it's uh, Shadow Baby on the forums, Wing Shadow on the Discord. Shadow's in there somewhere. It's close. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie? Hey, Stephanie, GSTG on the forums. And Craig is here somewhere. Now recording. Um, <laughs> we'll see. We, we might be joined by a few other, few other vassals as we, uh, as we get along here. Um, so let's just jump right into it because this was one of the, I, mean, I guess, kind of a surprise hit this summer. Um, just because box office has been up and down, and so what hits and what doesn't has been a little crazy. It's also a three-hour movie, um, and it was like making you know crazy box office alongside like other movies at the same time, which is also something we haven't seen a ton of um, since before COVID, right? So I mean, but it is Christopher Nolan. I mean, I was really looking forward to it. Um, his last couple movies have been kind of hit or miss i guess uh, in the theaters so i didn't really know what to expect but um let's just go into our uh, opening thoughts here like what would you say how about what do we give it like how many split atoms um would you give this movie <laughs> infinite <laughs> we gotta we have infinite to assign it an arbitrary happen. number it's like yeah <laughs> it's um, it's science. What's the what's the atomic atomic number for uranium? I give it whatever that is. Like um, which I guess depends on which uranium. Ninety two, <laughs> or is that right? Yeah, and, let's go with that. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I definitely. You know, whatever out of whatever, a hundred percent, and then some. I was blown away, pun intended. Huh? Huh? Oh goodness. Well, hopefully it's in good taste. Uh, what about you, Stephanie? Uh, I think I'd give it one. One out of five, yeah. W one out of five, we're going to say? Really? Yeah. It was that bad. Interesting. Ooh, well, okay, look, good. it wasn't... Look, I don't regret seeing it. But, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, we can get into it later, but, yeah, it this I don't think this... Uh, it it didn't like the emotional conflict didn't uh get me it uh it you know it's uh you know I I saw a lot of comparisons of this film to Memento and I think that is you know I don't think this film should be compared very to Memento. Very different movie, yeah, very different movie. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I. I I read some of, uh, there was a review in the New Yorker, I forget who the reviewer was, but they weren't so positive on it either. And so I, I guess I'm a little, I feel a little glad that I'm not the only person who feels this way, but. I have seen some mixed reviews on it, but generally, um, generally fairly universal praise, I would say. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, although I can, I can understand some people not. 
uh, in certain parts, especially because it's three hours long, and that's just not something that a lot of people are into. Um, but like, yeah. it's got oh, a very yeah. high Rotten Tomatoes score for both the audience and the critics, you know, which just doesn't mm. happen too too often. Um, yeah, no, I and you know, just like I, uh, I don't, uh, or you know, just like you know, like spare me Oppenheimer's martyr complex, and you know, just. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. It just. It wasn't very. Killian Murphy wasn't doing it for you. I don't know. Yeah, he, I don't think it's an issue of his performance. I think it's you know a per, an issue of what the movie was trying to do. And you know, I was a little confused by you know like how they tried to end this with like a cheaters never prosper type of moral at the end. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean. So I guess. I mean. What is the message of the movie? Right. Um. There, I mean, there's a couple, I think, but like, is AFK, this... save the day by voting against uh, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Jr. Of course, that's right, Robert Downey Jr. Who like for the is like hardly in the first half of the movie, and right. is is like if you don't if you don't know more about the story, is kind of like seems like the chill guy for a minute, <laughs> and then, then it right. all kind of unravels. Um, right. If I need to read the book to see the movie, that's kind of a problem. And you know, it's like it's okay for. Well, know, I think it's like, meant to be like obsessive... a surprise, but. I, if you need to like read, right? It's it's okay for like you know like to have more context because you read the book, but for the story to be kind of unintelligible because of, or if you haven't read the book, that's a problem. I think. Yeah, because well, they're obscuring a lot of things, especially I guess for people that, like I said, aren't aren't history buffs or don't know a whole lot about the subject material. But um, I do have one question, Stephanie. Are you now, or have yeah, you ever please. been a member of the Communist Party? Um, no, I have not. <laughs> um, so, Stephanie, I am very surprised by your reaction to it, and I just want to say. I've felt so many times on various episodes of Vok, like I'm the negative Nelly in the room of people that just are <laughs> guffawing over this. And it's nice. It's nice to be on the other side of that. And I promise I won't gaslight you. I will hear your critique. It's okay. No, I appreciate your I, critical I'm like, view. you're I exactly where I was with House of the Dragon. You know? No, like, someone, someone has to bring the nerd rage, Shadow Baby. And I'm glad that you were the one to do this for us, usually. Um, and yeah, no. you know, I'm just like, <laughs> and yeah, and you know, I, I'm usually not motivated to, you know, like podcast a thing about a thing I didn't particularly enjoy, but I have nothing to do today. So nice. <laughs> well, and I think and it's great. You know, it is, it's good to get the balance between, you know, like we'll just gush over it. And I think it makes for a better podcast all in all um, and yeah. challenging the ideas you know so are most of your critiques story driven because those i can definitely see from your point of view just the brief description you gave but as we get into it much of what i enjoyed about the film is the the cinematic experience um like particularly the sound for me not not just because it's my profession but the sound design in and of itself is this whole other character in the movie. And there's so many of the, like the utilization of Dutch angles and mise-en-scene that are, to me, it's a cinematic work of art all the way around. So 
are there any of those things that you did appreciate about it? Uh, yeah, there are some, uh, you know, it's it, for what I did appreciate, it was more about uh, just like what it is to get a bunch of mathematicians in a room <laughs> and to just like have those kinds of interactions. Because, uh, you know, I'm just like, you know, studied math in university and, you know, I'm a programmer in uh, as my profession. So it's, you know, it's, it's nice. Or it, that, that, so, that was kind of so like how does your experience compare to the wild campus culture of the 1940s? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's got to be a bit exaggerated, but uh, I mean, well, you know, there's parties and all that. But Well, I mean, it's the People's Republic of Berkeley. That's what it's called right. for a reason. And the, uh, it's, uh, well, you know, just like working 80 hour weeks, you know, like you gotta like let that energy out somewhere. Uh, you know, just that's what my experience has been. And, uh, at some point, you know, that all that partying does get old and you kind of just like realize you're burned out. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it is a big like, you know, like it's like it was, it, it can be kind of like that, and but with like a Revenge of the Nerds kind of, uh, you know, like a layer to it of just like we didn't peak in high school, ha ha ha, you know. I mean, I, um, I, I think, I mean, obviously, Nolan is is kind of a master of his craft, right? Like, technically, visually, I mean, we've known this for years, just excellent. Now, some people uh, will complain um, that he's more flash than substance sometimes. There, I mean, there are movies that um, that people have absolutely loved and other people you know, think are absolute trash. But you pretty much always agree, like, he does a very good job making the movie. But, I mean, a big part of this is it's... It's a very significant story. I mean, it's history kind of brought, um, brought to life, which I always, I always love. You know, kind of historic picks. Now, there's, there's definitely some parts that take license. You know, towards you know, with the flashbacks and like the, you know, dream sequences and things that like, is that too much? Or, I mean, I don't know. It's the subject material is very hard to cover once you, especially once you get towards the end and like they're going to be dropping the bombs and, you know, um. It's a very hard time. But yeah, like I, I feel like when he was giving his speech at the end, like when they're like, we did it, and like everyone's screaming in the gym, and he's like kind of like fading in and out of being like depressed and like, how many people did I kill, sort of thing. But he never really, I don't know, he doesn't really vocalize that. I mean, they kind of show you. Um, I do wonder, I don't, I don't know enough about him, like in his later life or his thoughts or anything. To really yeah, say. I did like that well, section of of them in the, him in the gym. So I think it's a really great representation of the anxiety and the sort of PTSD you would have about creating a device like that. And I don't, I don't think there's a big liberty taken as far as assuming that struggled with that. Oppenheimer did not say, "I am become destroyer of worlds" until many years later in in like the 1960s um an interview he didn't say it at los alamos uh no like he, in the movie he's kind of whispering that's not himself, the right that came to mind then it it occurred to me this is this is in 
think there's many. Yeah, I found it really cheesy how they, they shoehorned the line in with, uh, who was it, Florence Pugh, her character. Yeah. Yeah, well, you kind of you kind of feel like they had to put it in somewhere, and, like, obviously, there's that's part of the license they take there. Um, but I don't know, like, so it's it's definitely, so, I mean, World War II, right, we call them, you know, the greatest generation because, you know, people volunteered and they went and fought, you know, people that were doing horrible things. And then we got these people that put a bomb together, which is a horrible thing. But like at the time, like, I'm sure people were pretty, pretty darn happy about the whole affair. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like uh, America post 9-11, like people just kind of were acting different a bit. Right. And then if you know, you go forward a few years, like you might look at it differently. Um, so like, I don't fault like, the portrayal in the movie, I don't, you know, like I said, how accurate is that? But I don't fault any of these scientists that weren't necessarily the most, like, vocal or opposed or didn't feel, like, super terrible about it at the time, you know? Well, um, and, like, later on, they could be... Especially because it was against the Nazis. So, right. You know, from... And, yeah, and I mean, like, you, you don't even know to... if it's ever going to be used, right, if you make that. I mean, I think most people can agree, like... It's a weapon that we all probably wish was was never used on anyone ever. Um, yeah, and we used it right away because we were like, "Oh, let's you well, know, I, gotta show them we got it." I do think like so. if they had to film it like they did hydrogen bomb bikini coal, um, at, you know, and they do depict that uh, um in the Jason meaning of. Should we use it? The Japanese are not on the the point being towards the Japanese. They will not surrender unless we demonstrate a show of force. So this is actually going to prevent continued bloodshed. Um, if the same had been true of the regime, if they had not already fallen by the time the bomb was ready to test that have been true and I think there is some debate about well they had Heisenberg and mm. they may have continued to go until they been able to manufacture their own anyway so you know yes there's some quandary of using it as a live test rather than a you know here's and here's what it can do now yeah. stand down and, well I mean well, no, I don't they know have responded is. I don't know if this is well, a factor okay. or not, because they thought about using it in Europe, but where would they have realistically used it? Um, that would they would have felt safe using it, you know, because Europe is it's condensed, it's not an island, right? Um no. yeah, but I mean, you I know, like Germany has mid sites mid sites surely Germany had comparable mid sized cities to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, but we didn't like the the fallout and everything, like you know, and the the long term repercussions, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been rebuilt, right? Like at the time, we yeah. didn't know really if that, you know, like you may not be able to go back there, you know, pretty much ever, right? Sure, um, but you know, there there weren't like various, you know, just like they did the Los Alamos test, and there's yeah still lingering issues from that. There's a site in eastern Washington state where they assembled the actual bombs that were dropped on the Japanese cities, and that has a lingering issue, or that that has lingering radiation issues that the Department of Energy is committed to, to this day, yeah. you know, to cleaning, to, to mm. managing to this day, right? So it's, and, you know, like, you know, like, Chernobyl is, you know, like, you know, it's just, like, completely, like, or, you know, it's close enough, to, or it's not 
right? Like on any coastline, right? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, nuclear everything after this, right? You know, nuclear right. power, nuclear missiles, you know. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Medicine. So I think the. Mm -hmm. I, okay. So here's the thing for me. This whole like, uh, if you're going to like, so like this whole thing is based on you know just like the tension of like being the one to climb the mountain and plant your flag and as a scientist say I did this right but you know can that's what they're that's kind of the point of the scene where they were in the uh or they were still at Berkeley and he was explaining to like one of the students about like they're going to make a bomb out of this or using this like technology so you know yeah I, I i don't think that it's uh it was such a uh or, or you know i don't think this was something that they couldn't have anticipated and you know like what like if you know if you know like why would you make or why would you like why would building a bomb be such a coveted uh use case for this if it wasn't going to be so much bigger than uh you know the or than previous ways to do it and and you know it's just like it just he was you know seems like he was fully aware of that but just wanted the credit for doing it but he wanted to have it both ways really and the uh you know and they have the other character uh i think his name was like robbie who's uh you know he's just kind of like being the one to challenge Oppenheimer on this a little bit and just saying like this is or like talking about you know like if something like this ever gets built this the civilian casualties would be incalculable and it would dwarf any kind of military uh use case or use case against a military target right so yeah i mean if they had to know that i mean i think they had to know that going in i mean they also knew i, think I mean someone was going to build it at some point but um, yeah, correct. I think that they would have yeah. known many years before that, you know, the time of the Curies and especially relativity that th these likely machines were destined to be built. And I think what's poignant in the movie, and perhaps in real life, this would have been up in this point, perhaps not, but there's a zeitgeist that they're demonstrating of the hope and you know naively so this will be the war to end war this will be the last right, which time is what was said about world war one and world war two and because people can't that, imagine but that it prophecy worse. has that prophecy has come true nuclear weapons have not been used more time since right that's yeah um to date and you know it's 2023 so yeah, and you know, just like, okay, yeah, you know, I completely understand why for him and for the majority of the scientists working on the Manhattan Project, why, you know, like the fierce urgency of wanting to complete this to, you know, be able to use it on Germany. But the problem is that, you know, some way or another, the war with Germany would end. And you have still given the the state this capability, and he doesn't you know, and I again, I understand wanting to, you know, do something, but yeah, I th I think they did a good job of showing that there were plenty yeah. of people in the project that had exactly those concerns, and he probably did to some extent. But again, on a, on a war footing, you know, 
especially, I mean, you know, you had a lot of Jewish scientists, you had a lot of people that had fled Europe. Right. Um, no, and, yeah, and we don't, we, we don't have what we have now as just as far as access to information either, or like the ability to think about the consequences like we do now. Right. Um, and, you know, people, this is, you know, pre-Vietnam War, pre-Watergate, you know, people hadn't, right. you know, like the, the term coin or the term, you know, there's a lot more respect for just the office of the More trust presidency. for authority. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like the, the term military industrial complex was coined in the 50s because of this. Right. But yeah, it's just like, yeah, that's a good point. This is why I think as a, instead of the RDJ character, I think you know, like John von Neumann would have been a better foil to Oppenheimer because, you know, John von Neumann was, you know, he worked on the Manhattan Project. I couldn't tell you exactly how he and Oppenheimer would have interacted on a daily basis at Los Alamos, but, you know, like John von Neumann is the very right-wing, gung-ho, yeah, mutually assured destruction, just like, you know, like, you know, like, let's, like, when we're planning this, let's just add, you know, like, or let's just plan to, like, put in, like, or, or to drop, like, a hundred more bombs on this city to have it, you know, or for, for good measure, right, for, like, when we're planning out mutually assured destruction, and, uh, you know, he... We need thousands you know, he of was, them. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then just, like, he was, you know, he's just, so that would have been, like, a harbinger of the future if you, you know, if at least for, like, if you're wanting to depict the actual, uh, you know, like, Los, or the, the majority of your depiction is of the Los Alamos project, then, you know, you could have just, like, a lot of, like, or you could have him having a lot of, like, dark scent, dark humor about that. Uh, speaking of Los Alamos, I mean, it, we, we have to say that uh, all, everything aside, like, this whole, you know, building building the little town out in the desert, like, the you know, the, the, the entire project, the Manhattan Project, was quite a, an undertaking, and as quick as they did it, pulling the resources the way they did, getting everyone to cooperate the way they did. Um, I did find it interesting how it was basically, you know, leaky like a sieve as far as uh, keeping information, <laughs> you know, um, post-war anyway. But... I mean, I don't know. It's it's definitely one of like the you know great feats in human history. The, the fact that they did this in the timetable they did it in. But yeah, actually, I you know what? I think the movie does a good job of showing how haphazard some of it was, and how mm. kind of like, uh, this is <laughs> like you know, we had, certain things were not thought through. You know, even um, like I think Matt Damon's character is probably best used uh, f for that when he's like constantly being like. You know, yeah, well, you know, we just kind of were doing things differently. Like, I wouldn't do it that way today. <laughs> like, we know, we know better. Um, right. That is kind of like a startup fail fast mentality. <laughs> yeah. And they, they gave him a lot of operational control, Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I've always known that. And I, I don't know. I've seen, I've seen some documentaries. Um, I've read a little bit about him in some books. But I, I do find that part very interesting, especially as... Um, as much as they kind of had, I don't know if you'd say uh, suspicions or kind of re reservations about him um, in some of his history. So, like, you know, you fast forward 10 years, like, they would never have put someone like him running something like this, right? No. Yeah, I mean, um, I think a better, a good film to actually compare this to is there's a Studio Ghibli film called The Wind Rises, and it's about it's a, uh, great film. a Japanese aeronautic engineer or aviation engineer in during World War II, and you know he's he designs you know a lot of uh, 
fighter planes that get uh, used. And so, uh, and throughout the film, they try to address this topic of, you know, like having him have hypothetical conversations with his, uh, you know, his like idol, this Italian aviation engineer. And it's just like kind of trying to just like address the concept of, you know, like just like what, or, you know, what do you do when like, or like, you know, like when what you make hurts people and stuff, but it's also not very satisfactorily answered there, in my opinion. So, mm-hmm. so going back to um, some of the criticisms of the morality with it, I think that the film does a good job of depicting um, so Oppenheimer's struggle without it being audible so it's all done through visual representation and the the audio of the interpersonal reflection is actually conveyed through the constant input from other voices so rather than hearing Oppenheimer voice it or an internal monologue in his head we're it's filtered through other people's comments and then we are visually seeing him respond to that. It's his body language that has it come out. And another point I just wanted to make is as far as anyone involved in Manhattan and the U S government, it's pretty easy from our cushy positions in the the peace and quiet of our home and not knowing the threat of war in the same way these people would. You have to remember that um, Hitler was dead set on world domination and uh, that alone is evil enough, let alone the, you know, eugenics and genocide involved in his platform. But there are people involved at that time who are potentially old enough to remember or at least have grown up in the shadow of the Napoleonic Wars. And if you kind of look at it from that perspective, you can see why there would be this panic, why you would throw what amounts to today multiple tens of billions of dollars into a project and nothing else is so important to stop that wheel from turning and not only stop it from turning, but make sure something like this doesn't rise up again in another 80 to 120 years, like it was at that time. I think, I think that Nolan does a fair job in the movie of showing how risky and how terrible this is and how there is a moral kind of opposition to the core of what they're doing. But also mm-hmm. kind of allowing allowing for, yeah, like here's here's the situation at war, here's how the people feel, here's why people would, would probably do this, even scientists maybe who are not interested in war at all. Um and it's sort and of the, the I, I think he kinda lets you like whichever side of that because like you you'll never, you know, that's like a debate, like should we have dropped the bombs? Well, should we have done this in the first place? Um, right. You'll probably never get to the end of that discussion, you know, in our life. I don't think the movie advocates. But I think he he let yeah, I think he lets whichever side you're on kind of you can look at that and see and me, I'm like, I don't know. It's very hard to you know, it seems justified and not justified at the same time. And I think that's sort of the point. Um Right. 
it's, it's not so like it's um, not overly preaching at you either way. It is, but it is correct. making clear like how how terrible this thing is. Mm-hmm. We had. An I, I think it's a very feeling. hard balance. It's a very hard balance, and then the whole movie is framed around this hearing that we don't really know what's going on until what last half an hour or so, or forty five minutes, where they explain it's like it's years later, and it's the hearing to uh, recertify his his security clearance, which they've basically rigged, you know, so that he doesn't have a chance. Um, and that's where you we get a lot of the testimony and the flashbacks. And- we had an interesting viewing experience with that element of it because the trailer that was shown right before the film started was for this new Paul Giamatti vehicle that's coming out um, that doesn't look so impressive. It looks like a Wes Anderson movie done by Michael Bay. Um, But one quote from the trailer is, we study history not to understand the past, but to study the present. And as I was watching the film, and I was very surprised. I've never read Modern Prometheus, so I came in cold thinking that this would be a story more about Manhattan and less of a holistic biopic on Robert Oppenheimer. Um, So I was sort of pleasantly surprised by that. But it kept that quote kept ringing in my ears of this is a great way to understand the present. And it informed me a little more on some of the modern dynamics with politics and foreign affairs that I was not intimately familiar with beforehand. So, you know, examining the film through that lens enhanced my experience. And I I thought it was, uh, you know, it's like if you go into watching The Aviator and thinking it's going to be a movie about the Spruce Goose and then, and then you watch The Aviator and it's actually more about Howard Hughes' life and struggles. Um, that's sort of how this, this was for me. Yeah, you know, show me all the blueprints. So I think that's sort of the same techniques that we got with um, the water droplet with him is sort of his own internal show me all the blueprints. And that could be an artistic license, you could argue. But to me, it stands to reason that, you know, Robert Oppenheimer did create something that is evil. But he also was not an evil man. Um, this was this was some years later, I think. But um, when when he was asked about the project, he said, uh, "Some people, I think, were motivated by curiosity, and rightfully so. And some by a sense of adventure, also rightfully so. Others had more political arguments and said, well, we know that atomic weapons are possible in principle, and it's not right that the threat of their unrealized possibility should hang over the world. It's right that the world should know what can be done in the field, and then we can deal with it. So, and, and he kind of was sort of, I, I mean, he kind of was like skirting that line, I think, but, um, yeah, he's, he, his, his views, I think obviously evolved over time, but like I said, this happened so quickly. You do wonder, you know, how much time you even had to pop your head up. Like, I mean, they, they did give a, uh, a, a sense like of like, he to, wasn't doing like, much, right? 
Like he yeah, was trying no, to manage a, everything and can barely do that. Yeah, but on a project like that, you yeah, there, I I completely buy that you didn't really have a time or any time to like hear yourself think about this. But at the same time, mm -hmm. it's just like his you know like comments about like oh they're like you know you see the the news about that and or like back in his like Berkeley classroom is just saying oh they're gonna make a bomb about this you know. Think about it's the very... Florence Pugh character. Um, uh, like, well, I mean, she she comes and goes her. really quickly, he, but like, what was the, what was her purpose? Do you think? First of all, it, wonderful look, performance. It, she had a good performance, but like, look, it is known that Christopher Nolan does not think women have interior lives of their own. So you know, she's limited by that. Yeah, was she a real person or? Yes, she was a real person, a real uh, girlfriend of his. Real life. Physical. They were on and off okay. for many years. Um, it is factual that uh, during Manhattan, he had one last encounter with her, and she did some about three months after that commit suicide. There are some of the circumstances surrounding her death that were drawn into question as potential foul play but ultimately it was ruled a suicide in um i, be I believe she did it in a san franciscan hotel did you guys okay. catch the black glove in the, one of those shots when he was ruminating on it no Maybe there's a uh just like right in the top left corner of the screen while oppenheimer is ruminating on it there's one small shot of like a black glove over her corpse in the bathroom. So I, I took that to mean that just like he was ruminating on the possibility that it of the foul play, but right. Um, hmm. um not that it was I, not that it was Nolan telling us it was foul play for the purposes of this movie, guys. Right. It's like the the spinning top and yeah. like, I don't know guys, what does it mean? <laughs> I will you say know, we'll um, it out there. I thought that it was so dark and beautiful and you know when something's grotesque but also wonderful at the same time the depiction of kitty in the security clearance hearing when gene comes up hmm. envisioning the sex and having that like be in the room and not just some machination it was just so in your face and as a storytelling device i thought it was beautiful but then also sickening and you just could feel like the worminess of her staring into this space and seeing this happen you know when they yeah. i mean i liked emily blunt's character in this i felt really bad because she got kind of the short end of things um eventually although she wasn't like perfect either but i do think that um what was her name gene the his uh his miss his like lover mistress eventual um i mean it does make sense that she is is highly compromising of someone who's in like a very key uh military position essentially like he's you know they wanted right. them to wear uniforms they're like no no no, you're not gonna wear the uniforms but you know they were essentially you know military scientists right so right. it's, it's, it's definitely it's, plausible that you know someone kind of. I think the issue was more that 
like someone could you or usually like the issue of like extramarital affairs in relation to like a security clearance is just that right. someone could use it as blackmail. But, well, that's why right. that's why affairs are illegal in the military. Like it doesn't matter who or what because it's it's like something that's viewed as like you know it's compromised, yeah. right? Like, Hello, talk. Yeah. 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 I mean, you you know. Well, um, it, that's, well, that's there the source are also, of a lot of leaks. <laughs> there are also sweeping morality clauses in military service for a reason. Um, I, oh, yeah, yeah. I do think they did a good job striking the balance between Kitty Oppenheimer as a woman whose uh, husband has, you know, committed infidelity, but then also knowing, you know, when she points a finger, there are three pointing back at her. I mean, she was pregnant with another man's child when she got her last divorce. You know, so yeah, there's, I thought it was oh, really, really without, without lamplighting it and without, without putting too much focus on it or really, you know, you know, and here in this scene, what is, you know, explaining a hand holding the audience, this, the subtext of, uh, obviously you're devastated, by knowing that your husband has slept with a former girlfriend, but also you have to sort of suck it up and move forward because you know you know what that's like yourself, chick, and also you love them, so you're going to forgive them. So, and I think that scene where he rides out and she follows and just slaps him and says, you know, Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. Pull it together. Sums all of that up in just a single line. And Emily Blunt delivers it masterfully. It, it's one line that speaks volumes. And only well, an actress you, like her could be up to the task. Well, what do you think about the, the they almost leaving their kid? Because <laughs> um, supposedly that is, is real, somewhat real. Yes. Oh, they, I guess she, it seems like she had severe, you know, postpartum, and at some point she like kind of had to take leave, and so he um, had left, with, the, you know, with, the kid with friends, and like considered being like, it's you true. Just take him because he was it like, seems I can't like really they actually with did it with both children. So the daughter they children. had later, they had also placed her out with not the same people, but other people had taken the the baby girl for a while as well. Yeah, and again, it's not yeah. really her fault if he has postpartum depression, and then he's he's busy, and he's like, I, the way that it, it's put is that he feels like he, um, like he's like, well, I can't give you like a nice, good, happy life you deserve, so maybe like someone else should have you, um, which is like, as a yeah. parent, I can't imagine that. So, they all come from money, and at that time, I don't think it's um, unheard of to have you know a series of usually Latin women raising your children. Um, so I actually find it somewhat, I don't want to say commendable, but taking a break yeah, when you know you're at your breaking point sure. is better. And then re-entering the child's life when you're prepared to do so is better than like disengaging completely and just having a nanny take over forever. Yeah, I guess if most people don't have that, um, the privilege to be able to do that, you know, um, their situation just gets worse and worse and they kind of spiral out and they don't get help. Uh, yeah, no, I was, in fact, rather confused about, like, you know, why didn't they just, like, yeah, hire a nanny or at least, like, a housekeeper to, like, you know, have her not be alone and 
that house all day. It felt and, very weird you know, in, the, doing, in the movie. Yeah. Right. Because it's just like, you know, like even like, you know, maybe you, I, I don't know what the security rules on that stuff at Los Alamos was, but when they were living at Berkeley was when they, you know, gave the first kid up and the, it was, yeah. And it's just like, it's pretty, I think it was pretty clear that her problem was that she was, she never had the temperament to be a housewife, but that was mm -hmm. the, the, that was what, that was the age she lived in and the expectation she lived yeah. in, or the expectation she she was always, you know, like at war with. Yeah. Eventually the, she was supposed to settle down and that's, and maybe well, that was and this not was a time when, you know, she wanted, so. they're using yeah. terms to like, you're hysterical and giving you cigarettes right. and vibrators to help. She's got not the mental. Yeah. There's no, there's no mental health resources no, actually. No. So For anybody, I, I, as, hard as this may sound, I didn't find it as disturbing as other people might. I had postpartum depression after I had my son. And if it weren't for my mother and my older sister being able to take him most of the day whenever I needed to, that could have gone very badly. So I was able to do both. I had sort of in-home resources um, where I could place him with someone I trusted and walk away. Um, until I, you know, stabilized with my hormones, but in a time where you don't even know really necessarily what to call what you're experiencing, I can see if, you know, saying here, take this away from me. And um, I think really the larger point is love brought them back and they were, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't see a problem, like, when she's clearly having, like, postpartum issues and depression and, like, I'm, I'm like, okay. It, it it happens so quickly in the movie, and he's like, "All right, I'm just gonna here, just just take this kid. I need you just need to take the kid." And it, like, it feels very like you know, from a father's perspective, I'm like, "What the fuck?" Um, no, like I said, in real life, that wasn't exactly what happened. But they wanted to put it in because it's factual, but they didn't have enough time in a three hour movie to fully yeah, flush the dynamics out of it. So maybe it should have been omitted, really. Um, but it's also you know, it demonstrates, I think what it is, is a setup for the detachment later in the third act that makes you suspenseful of what will Kitty Oppenheimer say when she is brought forward as a witness in the hearing. Right. Hmm. It, it doesn't, it just, yeah, again, it just seems like, you know, like, honestly, like, if she lived in our age, that she would, she would just be a child-free professional woman. and. That's right. just the the time she lived in, and like you know, like they got married because she was pregnant, right? And the, you know, it it, you know, like it just, They're yeah, like, that's it, what you do, yeah, right. It it just doesn't seem like you know, like she ever, uh, really had any kind of a choice, and just you know, like, yeah, as most women did not. You know? Yep. Um, Did you see? They so, kind of wanted to play it throughout the movie as it being like plausible that maybe he would, you know, innocently leak things to someone, you know, good, you know, good natured. He might, you know, oh, well, yeah, let me tell him, tell him about what's going on here, you know, like his his friends back at Berkeley and such. I mean, did that play? Did you like think that that was really? You know, there was like a risk that maybe he was going to be like leaking secrets or. Or anything like that. 
I didn't because we never see him do any of that. So I think that's sort of the point is uh, it's constantly brought into question, but everything that we as the audience are shown in intimate moments and private would not actually speak to that character of him, like that that being a right. character difference of his. Even when he's tested, and, and there are a couple of points where he is tested by such things he's approached in the hotel by the Chicago teammates, the, um, I forget the guy's name, but the other gentleman from Berkeley that had taken his kid for a while, you know, hey, if you want to share something with Soviets, I can help you do that. You know, there are a couple of times where his medal is tested and he comes out squeaky clean. And I didn't see it at all as uh, it's implied that it's, off page and he is i saw it as no he's not so it's infuriating why he's being questioned now yeah i think i think they were wanting some of the audience to question him you know because like i said they they take it takes like two hours of the movie before you sort of get to what the i guess present day looks like you know well um, and i i also want to point out again I came in totally cold to this. I knew that uh, Dr. Robert Oppenheimer was a physicist who was largely responsible for leading the Manhattan Project and a key member in creating the atomic bomb. That's about all I knew. I think that's and probably going to that, be the majority is, of the audience. That's I mean, not the experience real. that I had. I've, I've since watched an extensive documentary about his life. Um, and I will say there's much of the film that is uh, consistent with fact and you know eyewitness stuff going back to the scene in the stadium did you guys notice that the american flags are wrong was it a 50 star one instead of it was a 48 a 50 star flag yeah <laughs> uh well you know what i'm probably not surprised by that yeah i i wasn't too i i actually didn't notice it myself it was pointed out to me by a friend after I saw the film, um, you know, it's an easy mistake to make and I'm not going to criticize. It's not like leaving a fucking Starbucks cup on the goddamn table in Winterfell. It's close enough. It's <laughs> not like, yeah, it's like we got the 13 stars and you're putting the 50 star flag. up. Yeah, you know? exactly. um, yeah, it's 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 close. I mean, it's like you that's a detail you should get right. Yeah. But at the same well, time, especially if it's like a budget issue um, of like, well, we can get a thousand 50 star flags on you know, Amazon for five bucks. That way we have a bigger budget for all this trip ass visual and sound effects. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> there so were we a couple of costuming issues I had too, but I I'm not an expert enough to know whether they were period or not. They just the buttons looked, didn't look right. <laughs> some of them, yeah, like some of the sweaters, especially like Josh Hartnett's character wore and things like to me looked more sixties, but I struggle oh, I with they that. Just word. From the seat from like the Pearl Harbor set, he was just wearing the same wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> I I struggle with with placing certain fashions, so it might have just been like it looked off for me. But I'm I'm trusting that it's probably right. totally accurate. Yeah, it's like, um, when we're something. Yeah, I would I would have chosen something different, like something that's very 40s or very 30s. Um. So that there isn't that 
uh, I don't know, it was like uncanniness of it. Um, yeah, I'd have no idea. Like, I'd watch this stuff and I might have a feeling like that doesn't seem right. But then maybe it's like right. the most period accurate thing I've ever seen. Correct. And I'm just like, going off of movies I've seen before, you know? So, yeah, I'm sure it is period. But it just, it seemed out of place to me because, again, it's not something you're used to. So that was, well, his, it's like, just, I would have made a different um, choice. It distracted me a little bit in a couple of places. Hardwick's but... clothes didn't seem like they were tailored correctly sometimes. So right. maybe that was part of the look. Maybe that was meant to be like a like budget professor look or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Or like, I don't care because my mind is busy with quantum right, mechanics. Mind. Like Which, yeah, that is true to life. That is true to C life. Cameo to <laughs> Albert. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I did find that funny because um, we see him in like a flashback, flash forward early on where he has, sees Einstein, you know, by the lake and you know, when he's talking to Robert Downey Jr. Kind of early in the movie where he wants him to like, hey, head up this department here for me after the war, right? Um, and he's like, hey, what did you say? What did he say? And you're just like, you never go to that. You're like, is that significant? Or, and then it you know, comes back later as like this big, you know, big moment. Um, but at the time, you were like, well, Robert Downey Jr. seems like a nice guy. <laughs> like everything and seems like it's going well. Apparently that encounter um, is largely true. There's there is a lot of truth in the fact that um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character had held this longtime grudge with Oppenheimer based on some early interaction at Princeton where he felt snubbed. He was like, you turned Einstein against me, man. Yeah, uh, so apparently that is, you know, it is true that his paranoia sort of ate him alive. Um, I... I would love to talk about, so one of my very favorite scenes in the whole film is in the third act where the prosecutor in the security hearing is uh, really going after Oppenheimer. And the scene starts with him at one end of the table and Oppenheimer in the hot seat that's been there all film. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but I noticed it right away. If you watch the water glass on the table in front of Killian Murphy, it's doing like the Jurassic Park thing where it the water in it is vibrating. And as the tension of the scene rises and the prosecutor encroaches on his personal space more and more, it becomes more violent and then the walls start to pulsate as well like as his blood pressure and anger rises the things in the room are responding to that and I just loved it I I thought it was so artistic and very strong visual representation of a panic attack or being overwhelmed in your mind and how Maybe not in the moment, but if you reflect on it later, it does have this like swirling, pulsating, yeah. pounding quality to it. And There's I a just, lot of it was good so tension subtle. building with the visuals, yeah. with the audio. Like I, this is definitely, I think, uh, worthy of the theater. Probably would have been like really good to see in IMAX, even though we didn't Correct. get to see it in IMAX. Uh, I, I still enjoyed it. Um, but I saw it in, in like a half-packed theater. But I think it was senior day because like I was definitely the youngest person in the theater. But <laughs> yeah, I had a friend uh, said it's meant for IMAX, 
but I also think that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it on a small screen. Like I look forward well, to you it. know, like I believe I like the big seventy millimeter screens, they actually had to like put a um like an extension to the shelf that holds the film because like it did like the giant, you know, uh, you know, film roll for those like was not big enough for this film. Yeah, so, so like, they, they had said to it's send 11, out, like, uh, 11 miles of film. It's crazy. Which crazy. is and, crazy. I mean, beautiful in the digital age. And um I, you know, I haven't bought a DVD of a movie in probably 12 years and I fully intend to buy this on oh, I guess Blu-ray is the thing okay. now. Yeah. Um and um, yeah, I just, you know, I think it's striking. And I'm not a Christopher Nolan fan. There, you know, Inception didn't blow my skirt up. Um, so I wouldn't call myself a Christopher Nolan fan. So are you fan, telling me I, you don't understand Tenet? This I, I never I've never seen it. Um oh, well we won't we won't discuss it then. <laughs> I've never seen that. And then is is yeah. Interstellar his? I've also Which never terrible. seen terrible. I I really enjoyed Interstellar. It it certainly had problems, uh, but I I another visually amazing uh, uh, film of his. Uh, Tenet was came out. Tenet's a very weird movie because it, it's not perfect either. I really enjoyed it, but like the whole conceit takes a lot of people out of it, and they they leave the theater kind of like what the hell. But it also like theaters had been closed for probably six months. And then, like, they mm. opened up, and that was kind of the first real movie that was in a theater. And I was like, yeah, man, get back to a theater. And then they closed down again, you know, like, a month or so later. Because, <laughs> because like, no one was going, right? Because we're still sort of late 2020 pandemic. They were like, okay, too early to open the theaters. And so it just kind of crashed and burned. Um, but he's coming off of Dunkirk and Interstellar. You know, kind of yeah. these two big movies before I that. I Dunkirk. Um but uh, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a big fan of his, right? Like I, I am of Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. I'm like seeing them all, you know, so I'm not a follower right. of Nolan, but this definitely, um, I, I just, to sum it all up, I would say it is a masterpiece. We, I went with a buddy of mine, my son, who's 16 and his friend, and it was also a very interesting experience walking out of the theater and hearing what the boys had to say about it. It's so like the, the two, two generations looking at it from different points of view. And, um, one, his, his, my son's friend said, you know, I think that's the best movie that's come out in the last few years. And I just like, are you crazy? I think that's the best film to come out in the 21st century. What ages are they? So they're 16, 16. So they're okay. So they're old enough to appreciate something like this. And yeah, the length and stuff. Well, like, that's how old I was. You're wouldn't have taken them if, if they were any younger, you know? Yeah. I knew that. No, yeah, like my son's anything. 11. I'd be like, no, nah, it was not. My wife didn't want to go with me either. Um, like I said, she, she made sure we went to Barbie. Um, I was like, we could do them at the same time. Like, no, we're not yeah. spending like eight hours at the theater, Adam. Um, right. <laughs> but speaking of which, that's a good transition, I think. Can we talk about the Barbenheimer phenomenon? Um, I don't know exactly how this happened. They were released the same week. And I don't know that either of them had like terribly lofty expectations necessarily. I think, you know, they were supposed to do okay. Um, certainly we didn't expect it. We kind of had box office for what, four to six weeks that like we haven't seen in years, uh, you know, realistically, but uh, Barbie opened with 160 plus million and this opened at about 80. So about half, which is still very good. And they, they're still every week. They're they're still you know 
making some money, but it's about Barbie makes about twice as much as uh, Oppenheimer. And then somehow the trend became like people going to see both. Like, oh, you got to go see. It's like a combo, you know, know, double feature it. Um, (laughs) Very, uh, very different. Pulling in twice as much makes sense because it has twice the demographic. You know. Yes, it's a shorter film. It's a big, you know, but I mean, Barbie could have flopped too, or this could have flopped. It's more I mean, this, of this an could have been a, this could have been a hundred million dollar mass. film, and that could have been it, right? Who knows? But I mean, so far, um, Barbie's over six hundred million domestic. This is just domestic, yeah. and Oppenheimer's over three hundred. So it's about what you would figure. Um, but uh, but, let's but see. again, let's Barbie internationally, uh, Barbie's an all ages film, whereas Oppenheimer's most certainly not. The same. So, yes. Yeah. So it's, you have a, look, it's you always have a broad impressive. audience. It's I think proportionately, they're neck and neck. The movie does that. Um, I, yeah, they both I don't, did well I don't understand why you're saying people weren't um, anticipating this. I've been waiting for this movie to come out for over two years. We saw the trailer for it when we went to see Dune, and I've been like, you know. Well, it's not that people weren't anticipating the movies, but there's a lot of anticipated movies that have come and gone very quickly. Like even True. like the the new Indiana Jones movie lasted like a week before it disappeared almost completely, right? Um, like a lot of big movies that have been coming out, just ha- like the Fast and the Furious movie, I don't think barely cracked a hundred million dollars. But I um, think again, like the you know the difference like, in those titles is that this Oppenheimer and arguably Barbie are original ideas, and that is so refreshing. It's newer nowadays. content, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, well, like Super Mario Brothers comes from really well, an existing franchise, established IP, but it's a brand new. I mean, we've not had like a right. Mario movie, right? And that did way more than they thought. I mean, because people have been saying, "Oh, the box office is dead. No one's going back to the box office." Pandemic, you know. But it's like you know, if you give the people the right stuff, you know, they're gonna go. So well, that's the thing is, like, the film industry needs to come correct about why would I pay upwards of twenty dollars to go to the movie theater where I can watch the movie in pretty high quality in the privacy of my own home at my leisure if I just wait a couple second, weeks. With the 10 second rewind function and subtitles. <laughs> do you, you know, know have I, a dream? Yeah, exactly. this, is, this is completely this is completely uh, but like do you ever that dream like you're in a theater and you're like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom or something. And you pause the movie, you rewind it a second. And then you look around and you realize everyone's like, why is the screen stopped? And you're like, shit, like, I don't want anyone to see my remote. <laughs> like, I can't let them know I've done this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it, no, unfortunately, I was at the home theater systems are very impressive nowadays and pretty cheap. So, you know, you've got to really cater to the experience of going to see it in um, in right in in the theater, and franchises and remakes are not going to cut that. Now, Barbie does come from an existing franchise, but they did a good job of marketing that it would be an original take on a classic, right? And not and one that is shoving a bunch know. of stuff down your throat, just a fresh take. And Oppenheimer is obviously a completely, I mean, there is like uh, other movies about Manhattan Project, but there's been no large scale biopic on the person. Yeah. yeah. So, but again, it's just like, how did they become so intertwined other than they just, they released the same weekend? And I think they maybe thought, 
you know, there wasn't going to be a lot of crossover. I think, you know, maybe one was going to die faster than the other and they both have kind of sustained, you know, you know, I mean, even like, let's look at, I think, what is it now we're Labor Day weekend, um, you know, Barbie's still number two, Oppenheimer's number five, like, you know, not a yeah, big Yeah, my guess is office, it, it started with just the frequency of the two being mentioned in the same breath and then you know, it, it has that sort of natural portmanteau quality to the names, and they're all, they're also both arguably biopics of two yeah. characters. And then all, all the kids, all the kids got onto it. I remember yeah. when I, we were at San Diego Comic Con, and I'm like on the train, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, we got to go see uh, our Oppenheimer." We're like, well, you can't go unless you see Barbie. And I'm like, what are these people talking about? Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, there were like multiple conversations like that. Yeah, I didn't it's. Hear that. I think, yeah. yeah, like, it just started this counter-programming and, you know, like, people, or, and, you know, it's just also, like, I guess, like, people can, or, you know, like, or people in Hollywood consider, yeah, like, going to the cinema as, you know, endangered enough that you don't feel the need to, or you feel less pressure to uh, compete so much, and you recognize the value in, like, getting the butts in seats no matter what film you're seeing. Right. Uh, and, right. uh, you know, maybe there's uh, maybe there was more corporate astroturfing to get it started than we realize uh, before they you I, know started doing interviews about the or the cast of each film started doing interviews about the other film. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think right part of strikes and everything. Um, part of it too is um, so normally, you know, how many times have we seen in the last twenty years where one studio has this project, one studio has this project, and they're going up against each other at the box office, but they are in the same genre. So I think it's the absurdity of the contrast between the two, right? One is yeah. pink, and one is dark, and one is light, and one is heavy. And, yeah, and, and like, it's, you, it's you, different you need, enough to be You ironic. need a palate cleanser after watching Oppenheimer to some degree, too, right? Um, yeah. So I think I think that's how it pairs. I do think Barbie is the is the chaser to Oppenheimer. I think the other way around, and probably uh, maybe is a different experience. Yeah, <laughs> would be my guess. Um, I uh, I have not seen Barbie yet. I had I had no intention of it when I first started. I'm like, oh my god, can you stop with just the create some original things. Well, there's but, been a million uh, Barbie, you know, movies I have, for I have world, heard, you know, right? I have heard it's very clever. I watched the trailer, and it does look clever, so I will see it. I'm not going to bother you would, watching you it. You would enjoy theater. it, Hannah. I'm going to tell you, yeah. you, you will enjoy it. It is fun. Um, I don't think I will see it in the theater, There's some parts of it that are like though. but it's very right. fun. It's cute if you just approach it for what it is and don't expect any more critical thought yes. beyond yeah. what it puts on you the You just screen. have to remember that Ken is the hero of the movie. Yeah. Well, doy. <laughs> it's not really. I mean, true, but... <laughs> Ryan Gosling is the hero of everything. Um, oh, he he is amazing. I mean, honestly, they um, they just did a really good job with that movie, and hopefully, we will uh, we'll have to see. We, we will definitely do a Barbie Vok when we can get uh, everyone else in here, because um, I think that'll be a lot of fun. And I'm not going to be leading that. That's for sure. <laughs> leave that to someone <laughs> with more enthusiasm than me. Um, you know, I'm the Alan in the uh, in the room on this one, but uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but yeah. So um, on that note, uh, wh yeah. What what are our final thoughts? What did you guys think of the fact that the violence, the eruption, the explosion, we never actually see it. You never see 
really the bomb go off. You, like you don't see, you see the, like, you see them so reflecting on Nagasaki, but you don't see that. And I, I thought we would. Um, and I, I almost towards the end of the film started to feel like disappointed, but then I thought, well, what does that say about me psychologically and my own like desensitization to like warmongering and bloodlust? And it was to me, it ended up being very thought provoking. Yeah, that's a fair self-reflection, Hannah, I think, because um, we I feel like we've seen that shot so many times. We've seen right. um, some archive footage, obviously, we've seen the aftermath, and we've seen it recreated so many times. Um, and in the context of how the scenes played out leading up to that, like, I, I was just like, I, I, it was enough, like, his, like, you know, apocalyptic, you know, demon vision, like, you know, like, I don't need to see, you know... Yeah, kids walking around, you know, dying and like, I, right? Like it was, it was pretty brutal. Just um, sitting in the theater, kind of being pulled through that. So it's almost if they like, had done it, know, I'm the sure they could have done it tastefully. But I get why they the, didn't. Like the best horror films are like what you don't see. Yeah, and I think it puts them. It puts you in their perspective though too, because at that moment, he's telling them in like the basketball, you know, gym or whatever. And they're cheering and screaming and like, yeah, we did it, which is probably a very natural reaction for them there, right? Um, but we know what it looks like. We know what the cost is. And like, he's also kind of reflecting in that moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you, I guess they, they wanted to like counterbalance enough that like, it's, you understand why these people are breathing a sigh of relief, being like, oh, hey, the war's over. We did it, you know. Um, at at the same time that we're like reflecting on how terrible it is, right? I I just thought it was very tastefully handled. I thought it was a stroke of genius, and the the sort of negative space art that is created with not seeing it. I I was at dinner. Um, also, it was kind of appropriate that you know, like they didn't show that because. They didn't really address this in the film, but Oppenheimer did, like, you know, immediately after the war, just very, like, work to downplay any kind of reports about lingering effects as, quote, Tokyo Tales, quote, end quote. Mm. Oh, about, like, uh, radiation sicknesses yeah. and, yeah, defects. and um, I, I bet that was, like, the uh, the state, you know, the state-sponsored propaganda right right but he still allowed himself to you know be used for that they had tons of yeah, other scientists to make that testimony that's fair i was at dinner with my cousin over the weekend and he hasn't seen it yet um and he's like oh but we are we're gonna go see it and we have to do it in the theater because like you've seen the atom bomb like that you have to do it in the theater and i i had to bite my tongue to not give anything away of you're not gonna actually see it bro um well, you see the test, the atomic test, which is pretty, pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, and, yeah, and no, again, it just makes you think of back in the day, you know, they just like didn't take those kinds of precautions, you know, just like LSD was also in- invented around the same time frame. And the guy who invented it tested it on himself. Oh, I got to say, it was fun seeing some of like the makeshift safety things that people were doing, like tape and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't I don't need the welder's goggles because the windshield will stop the UV. 
Yeah, like well, like what about the sonic boom, right? <laughs> yeah, they're like, just are, duck are, and turn your back and you'll be good and then turn around. You know enough about safe. science <laughs> to understand how to build the bomb, but you actually don't know enough about it to read. Like, Look, during the Cold War, the, they were the telling effect, people to hide under you know? the desks if the nuclear yeah, exactly. bombs came. So, you know. Um... Um, the one thing that was omitted from the film that is a big uh, controversy, and I've realized that because uh, I mentioned it to my my friend Real David that went with us, uh, we were talking about it before we left, and he had never heard of this, and it struck me as wow, the propaganda to cover that up is still prevalent. Um, they never once mentioned the downwinders. Have you ever heard of that? Like I assume, like people that got like fallout, like. You yeah, know, outside so the city sort of thing. Through through New Mexico and Nevada, um, there are folks who have had generational cancers and deformities from being downwind of Trinity. Yeah. When it went off. Surprising. Mm. And you can sort of track there I I once saw an overlay of um cancer rates and uh congenital deformity rates. And the wind pattern that day over the area, and you can track exactly where it fell out mm. if you lay the two together. And it's it's not really talked about. Where it was brought to my attention is uh, my sister-in-law, about 15 years ago, gave me a copy of these books by Ellen Hopkins. They're novels that are written as poetry so each page is a poem um but then they they all tie in together to form a whole novel and she grew up in the area and in the novels she mentions downwinders and i had to go and look it up because i had never heard of that and it it is very interesting how public opinion and you know the zeitgeist and what you remember and what you don't remember is completely formed by large-scale propagandist operations with the federal government. Yeah, I mean, I feel well, that's not true happy, of so no. many things. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I do hope, though, that... Um, my intention in bringing that up is hopefully get people thinking about it. I think it's owed to the people that, you know, were innocent bystanders who have had. What is, what is the you know, podcast? Um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but they, where they do that, it's like, Hey, remember this thing? And it's not even necessarily government or military things. It's all kinds of stuff where this happens where it's like, Hey, do you remember this thing in that story? And they're like, yes, I do. And you're like, that's not actually what the story was. <laughs> <laughs> like what? <laughs> um, yeah. And like they go back through and like look like you know you might have seen this headline or something and you know even if a correction was was made or maybe it never was like it just doesn't disseminate like you know, right. first impressions are kind of like that's why you know defamation suits and stuff are you know because if someone comes out and says like hey so and so did this terrible thing and then you know a month later unless it's like this really big public thing kind of getting every like people are going to remember for years 
you know, the, yeah. the first version of the events that they've seen. I mean, we've seen this with, um, you know, bombings and uh, mass shootings and various things like where like you get early reports and then it like, you know, just sticks in your head. You're like, wait, didn't, isn't this what happened? You're like, no, that's not what yeah. happened. Um, um, it takes a lot of time to, to learn the truth. It speaks to like the, you know, the silent uh, suffering and cost in the name of progress which you know again going back to how we started this discussion like and the morality of atomic weapons but nuclear science is important and unfortunately necessity is the mother of invention and war is often the catalyst for and the causality of the necessity so there are so many you know my cell phone in my hand right now, the microwave in our kitchen, these are all war machines. There are so many things that we have and take for granted and are innocuous now that were only invented in the pursuit of warfare right? and were in, intended to be weapons, including nuclear medicine, you know? Yeah, well, your, and, your cell phone, like, you know, 50 years ago even... They'd just be like, well, this is clearly a spy camera. Like, that's all they would care about. Right. Like, there's a camera in it. <laughs> like, there are no cameras that small. You know, but we need wireless technology to communicate on the battlefield, right? So there's all these things. I mean, even hell, even the wheel, I'm sure. You know, we got to perfect the wheel so we can get faster chariots to slaughter these, you know. Yeah. Well, but I, I do also think, and this is, I guess... Um, poignant when we talk about the Manhattan Project because technology has it has changed war and it has kind of decreased the frequency and likelihood of like especially large scale wars and violence right um, like we have we have satellites and you can't just like sneak your you know tanks through a forest and like jump on some other country and catch them by surprise anymore right yeah. um, like just communications are a big part of that like there's if still violence at, around the world and obviously, you know, guns and all that, but like it used to be very regularly massive wars involving tens and maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, you know, correct. going hacking at each other with swords and arrows. And um, like, we've kind of gotten past that, but then it's like, we have this like world ending, you know, uh, nuclear war hanging over our heads. Like what if that ever happened? Um, you know, how, how much fiction has been written about what happens if, you know, they, if they launch the bombs. Right. I haven't seen the global numbers, but U.S. military casualties have never been anywhere close to the numbers from World War II in the wake of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In fact, they have all steadily decreased with technological advancement. Now, in a perfect world, I'm I'm a pacifist, so I... I'm extremely anti-war. Um, I just think there's absolutely no winners. It's the fucking stupidest practice we have. And if we would crowdsource ideas the way we do for war, my God, the world we'd live in now, right? We would already been on Mars, you know, that kind of thing. So make love, not war. Yeah, you'd hope, you'd hope that the world gets on board with that. But unfortunately, there's still a lot of places in the world where you know poverty and struggle is is very much real, and Correct. there are always people that well, want to take from other people, and um, and at, you know, like it's like Sergeant York, perfect. if you've ever studied him, is like 
you know, there are there are things that are so horrifying, like genocide. The, I mean, the Holocaust, the idea of trying to eradicate a race of people from the earth is just so that is an abomination. And how can you how how can pacifism prevail in the face of something like that? And that's also something I think films like Oppenheimer are poignant and thought provoking of as much of a pacifist as I am, if somebody like Hitler were chancellor today, I would want to pick up a weapon and fight against that. And there are times where words are not enough in the face of an evil like that. And to what extent are you willing to go to eradicate that evil? Like even just us with our like kind of like tangential knowledge, like we're able to sit there and talk for hours. And I'm like, I, I do wonder like how much of this is even exposed to kind of a younger generation because not even because it's like not being taught in schools or they don't think it's important or whatever, but it's like, they have so many options. I mean, until right. even the last 10 or 15 years or so, it was like, you know, you old movies, old TV shows, like that's what you probably, you know, grew up on and they were passed down and now you kind of have to like actively do that um, because well, like they also, otherwise they have know, a thousand things they could watch at any given moment. And plus there's YouTube and TikTok and so many things like immediately um, competing for, for eyeballs. Right. So unless well, we they, had a lot of things that were time. world war two related growing up, but we didn't, we weren't heavy on the Vietnam stuff. And I think, yeah, it felt like it, too it recent. It to the fact that, like, Vietnam, Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan, these are wars that were very controversial within the United States, whereas World War II, everyone's participation was wholly, like, yeah, we're on board. I don't, I don't know that there was a lot of controversy with us engaging in that war after Pearl Harbor. But Vietnam. I think back in the day there was, I mean, because like a lot of there were people that wanted, you know, the U.S. to stay out of the war, obviously. But um, yeah, looking back, I mean, everyone, I think, is proud of the fact that, you know, we the, that war came to an end yeah. um, and we did our part and, and we, a lot of other countries you know, Maybe did our their European part. involvement, but again, these are our allies. I mean, if we were going to in for in for a World War One, in for a World War Two, right? Like, why? Why wouldn't we have been? Um and and again, like, you know, as an Irish American, it's one of my deeper shames about my heritage that they would remain neutral, although being a tiny nation and seeing the chip stacked against you, I, I could see for self-preservation, you might want to just sit quietly by. It's sort of like um, David Tennant's character in Good Omens. <laughs> I'll, I'll see yeah, and well, I mean, fascism was, was also kind of spreading around Europe prior to World War II. And so there's yeah, a lot of, exactly. uh, they did a lot of work kind of compromising people, I think, in that, in that regard. Lots of dynamics at play. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, overall, you know, I loved it. I really enjoyed this discussion of it. So um, and we'll have more stuff coming out, I'm sure. Uh, it's been kind of a lull lately, but I think things will kind of pick up around a little more. Um, I got to look because we have like backlog of stuff to get to still. So, well, that'll buy us time. Kind of fell off. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, thank you, Adam, for hosting and doing all the legwork here. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you guys for coming and chat with me. So, yeah, always fun. So. All right. And start, Stephanie, we didn't keep you too long, did we? No. And uh, like, yeah, what, what was the last, like, we've been doing the Agatha podcasts. Um, we just, just did, time and then there were them, none. But... And we have, we're going to record Sad Cypress uh, this coming weekend. And I've, I've listened to a few of them, which are excellent. And then I feel like I'm like, man, I have so many of these books to read to catch up. But they're also kind of, they're one-offs too, so you could. Yeah. At some point, I'm like, I should jump on one of those, but I'm just like, uh, yeah. You should, um, especially on. if you're um, not like a huge fan, one to jump on and look forward to, uh, and it, and you have a while, is uh, Crooked House and Endless Night, and those will be, they're, they're some of her later books, so we have a while to get there, but they're both excellent. You would really enjoy them. Look at. It. I mean, I've like I've, I've we've all seen plenty of Agatha Christie, you know, stories uh, translated or movies or over the years. Or, yeah, I, I'm just not hugely familiar. I do know is is the haunting in Venice that I keep seeing previews for that. Is that Agatha Christie or because it's got a what's his name in it with the mustache? And I'm like, wait a second, her is this another thing? Um, if it's her for whoa, yes, I actually. I don't know. Um, got the actor and like he still uh, got the mustache. So that's why I'm like, is it, it is it him or it doesn't ring a bell? Um, I'm not as much of an expert as Bina. There are several uh, on the yeah, website I've never it's read. It's not like before. supernatural, but then like um, like Sherlock Holmes had like the Hound of the Baskervilles and stuff, right? Uh, so it's like so. a Scooby Doo. I don't know. I just like I keep seeing previews on TV. I'm like, wait, what is this? Um, so I don't know. Anyway, regardless, we'll, like I said, we'll we'll cut all this out. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been it's been a while. I've been I've been busy, and it's it's good to get back to it, especially since who knows when we're gonna have more uh, House of the Dragon or you know other things coming back. So it's good to get get more done, and then hopefully we'll get hopefully we can get together and get Barbie done here soon because that'll be fun. Yeah, I think uh, for House of the Dragon ballpark is like summer twenty twenty four, but you know, obviously we only we'll only know when it's right in front of us, right? Exactly, because everything keeps getting delayed or just taken off the schedule right now, and we just like. Who, yeah, who and knows? what's the union you know? status of the CGI artists, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on right now. So. So uh, the Haunting of Venice is a Hercule Poirot movie, um, oh. but I. Uh, and I guess it is one of her books. There we go. Maybe, hey, maybe I'll watch that and then we'll do, we'll do something on the movie. <laughs> Maybe I'll so find time for that. The book, though, is not called the, A Haunting in Venice. It's called Halloween Party. It takes place post World War well, II generic. on All Hallows Eve. Yes, yeah, sir. It's called an invitation for a Halloween party, sir. Crikey. Where's Venus? So. She can yell at me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 it was no, good. Sorry. It was good. I was kind of, I was hoping, like, I wasn't sure because I know there was a lot of people that were interested in, um, in maybe doing Barbie, and I was like, we could just do it at the same time. Like, you know, <laughs> that'd be one hell of a podcast. You could just jump around. <laughs> but um, 
You know, you know I, I think like for a podcast to nail people 